It's the ultra-processed junk food that we have available 24-7 here in the United States, for example, where any time of the day we can go get a dopamine release just like cocaine or heroin would do. But instead, you could do it multiple times per day and it's legal. It tastes really good and it's affordable, right? And everyone, for the most part, eats this type of food. And so we train our brain for years and decades. And then all of a sudden we're like, okay, I'm going to diet. I'm going to lose weight. I'm not going to touch sugar. It's like, well, good luck. It's like telling the drug addict, like, all right, no more drugs. You just got to like, we'll power your way through this. And this is why it's so difficult for people to get off of these addictive substances. Same thing for food. And this is where my eyes were open and I was awakened to, oh, this is why people struggle with transformation. It's because we expect them to follow this diet as if it's no problem. Like you just... We'll power your way through it, and it should be easy for you. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the growing team here at Levels. We're a venture-funded startup backed by more than a 1,000 of our community members and some of the best VCs in the game, including Andreessen Horowitz. On this podcast, we talk about everything we do. We share the learnings about our culture and what we're building along the way. This is Inside the Company. When Drew Manning was 30 years old, he decided to undertake a journey with nutrition and fitness, and he wasn't really sure how it was going to end up. Well, if you know of Drew Manning, this is his story, the fit to fat to fit journey. As a trainer, he wanted to develop deeper empathy and a better lens on some of the things that his clients would go through when they were thinking about getting into shape. So in 2009, Drew decided to, for six months straight, eat highly processed foods, eat things that were not part of his regular routine, and he stopped working out. The goal was to put on weight. Now, this sounds counterintuitive. He put on 75 pounds, but he put it on with the intent of seeing how he would physically feel, seeing how he would mentally feel, and after six months, he would try to lose all that weight. Well, the journey was a lot harder than he thought it would be. Physically, he started to notice big changes in his demeanor. Mentally, he started to notice how emotionally draining it was to go through this journey. And so after six months, he started trying to lose this weight and it was a lot harder than he thought it would be. This again helped to reinforce this empathy for why it can be so challenging to go through these health and wellness journeys. Well, fast forward years later, Drew did it again. He put on weight and he lost it. This time he used a CGM, specifically levels, to get more data about the way food affected his health and some of the insights he would see when going through this fitness journey. And so Drew, an author, a podcaster, media personality in every respect, he's even got a TV show, Fit to Fat to Fit. Drew sat down and shared his journey with putting on weight and taking it off. We had a great conversation, a lot of it about mindset, a lot about creating the healthy foundation for all these other behaviors to enable positive nutrition, positive routines with fitness. It gets so much deeper than just eating the right foods or having consistent fitness. It's everything from sleep to mindfulness, meditating, gratitude, all of these aspects have to do with having a strong foundation, a strong mechanism for being able to maintain routine and maintain balance. Anyway, no need to wait. Here's a conversation with Drew. Let's kick it off with going all the way back to how you started this whole journey, going to your background, how you got into fitness and nutrition and what 
what was sort of the catalyst for this journey that you're headed on? So we'll leave it on a bit of a cliffhanger for you to navigate this one with your hand on the rudder. Yeah. So a little bit about my backstory. So I grew up in a family of 11 brothers and sisters. And there was eight boys, three girls. I was number seven. We all played sports. So I grew up playing football and wrestling from a very young age. And so for me, growing up, I was always active, which means I was always in shape and I was always fit. And I never knew any different, right? And uh, fast forward 2009, I became certified as a personal trainer, thinking, hey, I'm in shape. You know, I could help other people get in shape. And so I embarked on that journey and then right away, I could tell there's a disconnect between <clears throat> my mentality of, you know, hey, you just, you put in the work, you put down the junk food, you eat healthy food and you go to the gym, boom, you see results. Like it shouldn't be that hard. And of course, my clients who didn't grow up every single day of their life in shape like I did, it has struggled to stay consistent and they couldn't understand why it was so hard for them. I would get frustrated with them when they would tell me excuses about why they, you know, messed up on the weekend or gave in temptation and those kinds of things. And, and then one of my clients at the time was, he was my brother-in-law. He told me, you know, Drew, you don't understand what it's like for me, for people like me, because for you, it's always been easy, but for me, it's always been hard and I can't just do it like you do. And I was like, oh, okay, you're, maybe you're right. Maybe there's something that I'm missing here. And then my brain started to wander and thinking of ideas of, okay, how can I need a better understanding? What can I do to to better understand the situation. And then for whatever reason, this thought or idea entered my mind of what if did you get found on purpose? And for some reason that just clicked. And it's like this light bulb went off on my head, like, oh, maybe that's something I need to do. And then I, you know, checked with my family and my friends, pitched them this idea, like, what if I do this experiment where I stop exercising, gain a bunch of weight, document it, and, and, and what do you guys think? And everyone's like, yeah, that sounds crazy. You should totally do it. <laughs> so, uh, that was the genesis of fit to fit to fit. I felt like it was, um, something I was called to do. I felt like a calling at the time. And so I embarked on that journey. And so fit to fit to fit in a nutshell was my journey of, of intentionally gaining weight. So six months I couldn't exercise. So no exercise. And then instead of Morgan Spurlock, who did supersize me, which, you know, he focused on McDonald's or fast food for 30 days. Uh, what I want to do for six months was focus on everyday American foods that we grew up with here in America in the 70s and 80s, you know, so super highly processed, uh, delicious foods. I'm not going to lie. They do taste delicious. <laughs> um, very convenient, very affordable, right? Super cheap. And those are the types of foods that I'd focus on to gain the weight for those six months. And to make a long story short, I put on 75 pounds of pure fat in those six months. It was one of the hardest, most humbling things I've ever done. And uh, luckily the story kind of caught on with the media and the story went viral. And that's why most people know me as the fit to fit, fit guy. So I gained 75 pounds in six months and then was fortunate enough to lose it again or lose it the next six months. Uh, so that's why it's called fit to fat to fit. And you you rigorously documented it, but one thing to go into is the idea of the mental component. So you knew during this journey, like you, there was a start to it and there was an end to it as far as goals. Like you knew what yeah. you were doing, but mentally, how did things, if at all, how did it start to shift as far as like you physically feel different? That's fine you physically see yourself in the mirror. What was the mental component when you're like, man, what, like, did you ever question like, what am I doing? Like, I know what, what I, I know what the end state is going to be, but naturally when you physically feel 
off. And you, when you physically are less healthy mentally, that comes into it too. So what was that like? Like, what were you feeling yeah. when you were sort of going through this journey? Yeah, the mental and emotional component was the biggest surprise. I was not expecting it to be as psychological, psychologically challenging as it was. And that's where I learned the most valuable lesson. So my identity, my entire life before this was my body image. So Drew, the fit body guy, because mm-hmm. that's all I ever knew. That was my identity and that was my self-image. And so the, the second I gained 10 pounds or 20 pounds, my, I had this identity crisis. <laughs> I kind of freaked out, like, wait a second, this isn't me. Like, and so I wanted to go up to strangers and explain to them why I was overweight and, and wanted to show them before pictures of what I normally looked like and wanted to over explain about what I was doing so that they didn't judge me. Cause I kind of freaked out, um, in those moments being overweight for the first time, I didn't know how to handle it. My identity was based on my body image looking a certain way. And so that was a very, very humbling experience for me. And I think, you know, for a lot of people who grew up their entire life out of shape, their body image becomes their self-image. And what I mean by that is their identity is solely based on their body. Like, oh, I'm the fit person or I'm the fat person. And then they tell themselves that story for years, decades, and they attach themselves to that story. And so when they try to lose weight, maybe they do lose some weight, but they still see themselves as an overweight person because that's what they've told themselves and they believed that story for years. And so for me, the opposite of that became true for me. And so I kind of freaked out. So the psychological aspect of this was really, really difficult. And then um, at the time, I had two little girls that were um, two years old and, and, you know, around one. And uh, my two-year-old loved to like, uh, she wanted me to chase her around the house. And, and I remember as they got heavier, like 50, 60 pounds into this, it became more difficult to chase her around the house because I wasn't exercising. And so I remember one day I came home from work. And by the way, I had a full-time job in the medical field during this whole experiment back this back in 2011. And I remember coming home, chasing her for a minute or two, being out of breath, being super exhausted mentally and physically. And I sat on the couch to take a break and she didn't understand. So she was trying to pull me up to the couch like, daddy, daddy, come play. And then I told her I can't. I was like, daddy, can't play right now. I need a break. And she doesn't understand why. And she started crying. Right. And it, it kind of, it broke my heart because in that moment I realized this sucks. Like, and I'm doing this on purpose as an experiment and I can't play with my kid. How many millions of people out there can't play with their kids or their grandkids because not so much their weight, but because of their health and how out of shape they are and how much that must hurt people inside. And then I started to realize, man, this journey of transformation, even though I was doing this on purpose, <clears throat> helped me realize that transformation is way more mental and emotional than we think it is. And that's where the empathy started to come into play. And I started to empathize with people who may, might get stuck in the situation. Um, and I, I can better understand why they get stuck here and instill the, the mental, emotional turmoil that um, they go through as they're trying to better their lives and, and transform their bodies. And so for me, it was that eye-opening experience. Like I said, it was truly humbling. And I learned a lot of empathy from this experiment. And I realized just how wrong I was. I admitted I was wrong to the world about my approach of how easy I thought it was. Like, hey, you just do it. And, you know, there's no excuses, you know, and you just blow part of your way through it. Um, that was my mentality before I did it. Afterwards, I have a lot more empathy and, and um, compassion for people who struggle with body image issues and weight issues because this experiment really... Uh, humbled me in that sense. And now I'm a big proponent of uh, empathy first 
in trying to bring empathy, more empathy to the fitness industry so that people feel more understood instead of judged because it's a very judgmental industry based on body image. So that's kind of what the, the mental emotional side of things were for this first experiment back in 2011. Yeah, it's wild because it's it sounds like such an average experience. Like you sort of rest to the mean to do this thing and that becomes this average. But there's the self-fulfilling prophecy, which you touched on of like, hey, this is my identity. You become that. And it's really hard to get out of that. And you, it sounds like you had somewhat of a mental defense mechanism where you had to defend like why you were in this position. Hey, I'm not normally like this because your identity was still wrapped up, like especially when it first started, it's still wrapped up in the I'm not that person. But then yeah. once you start becoming the person, what was it like when like, did you feel um, as you progress? So as you got closer to the six months, did you feel like you were looked at or maybe judged differently or interacted with differently for people who didn't know you. Not necessarily people who know you would be like, this is a, a point in the timeline. This is not the Drew we know, but people who don't know you, was it sort of a, did, did you have like a very different lived experience as far as like those interactions? And I ask because you hear it often where people will go through drastic health and wellness journeys and they say, I can't believe how different I felt viewed or treated within society? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I really was very observant about how I was treated. And here's what I learned about my experiences. As a male uh, in society, I feel like it's more of the norm to be pudgier, you know, huskier and be accepted by society. Like it seems like it's okay. And the way I, you know, I'm six foot two, so I carried my weight pretty well. People would tell me all the time, oh, you look normal, you look average, you look like a normal American, <laughs> right? Um, that's kind of where we're at today in society. Um, there were a few experiences where maybe I was judged, but maybe it was a lot, a lot of it was in my head. I remember one time I was at the grocery store and I had a shopping cart full of, you know, cinnamon toast crunch and tons of like chips and cookies and crackers and granola bars and soda and juices and like all the good stuff, right? Like all this delicious stuff that you can find at the grocery store. And I remember there was these three women behind me, uh, you know, watch, I felt like they were kind of watching me check out with all of this <clears throat> junk food. And like, I feel like they were just staring at me the whole time, judging me because I was like unloading boxes of this, this ultra processed junk food. And um, I wanted to say something to them like, hey, ladies, like normally I'm into spinach and broccoli and kale and and I, and I eat chicken and like, this isn't my normal diet. And here's my website. Like I wanted to let them know that I'm normally an in-shape guy. Uh, but I, in the moment, I stopped myself and I didn't say anything. And I just kind of let that feeling sink in. Whether they were judging me or not, I don't know. But I think a lot of times you feel judged if someone's looking at you differently and you're uh, someone who's overweight. Um, I feel like, yes, it, it is judgmental. People, are, people can be judgmental, but at the same time, you don't know. And so you make up assumptions or stories about the way people look at you. Like, oh, that person's looking at me probably because I'm overweight. And you make up a story about them and, and it becomes your reality. Um, and so that was, that was an eye-opening experience for me because I feel like it helped me empathize with those who, with those of my clients or people who are overweight who go out into society. And maybe some people will look at them differently or maybe they judge them or maybe they're thinking about, you know, why are you eating a lot of junk food? And um, it's something that, you know, my clients or people who are overweight have to go through maybe on a daily basis. Maybe they've lost a hundred pounds and no one sees how hard they've worked to lose a hundred pounds. And maybe they've got a hundred more to go, but someone 
coming in that day sees them eating junk food, like, oh, why are you so lazy? Why can't you just be disciplined? And you don't know their backstory. You don't know anything about them. And that's kind of why it's so important not to judge people based off of the chapter of your life that you're in, because they don't get to receive the other chapters before that led you up to this point. And so that's why I'm a huge proponent of empathy. Um, but yeah, there were some moments that were like that. But I will say, you know, being female is probably different. I think females have it harder than, than males do in society because I think women are judged more harshly for their weight, for their physical looks or for their body image. So if I were to do this as a female, I know I did have a few females on my TV show who did this. And I feel like they probably were judged more harshly or treated differently um, versus a male that's just maybe huskier or, you know, a little more pudgy. And that seems to be more socially acceptable. One of the many things that we do with Levels is create content about metabolic health. The main thing that we do is we have an app. The Levels app pairs with a continuous glucose monitor so you can track your glucose in real time. More than 40,000 people have used Levels to lose weight, gain energy, and increase longevity. You can see how things like food, sleep, exercise, stress, and environmental factors affect your metabolic health. And Levels is backed by some of the best thought leaders in the world, including Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Robert Lustig, and Dr. Mark Hyman, amongst others. To learn more about Levels and track your blood sugar in real time, join Levels at levels.link company. When you were eating and you started gaining this weight, was it one of those things where you, you felt it immediately or, did, or was it a bit more gradual where all of a sudden you looked and you're like, wow, like I put on some pounds because it's easy when you look at the, when you look at the goalposts, like the starting and the end point before you started getting back in shape, it's very clear. Like they're very, two very different bodies, but what was it like as far as like, was it the first month, second month? Like when was it that you noticed you're like, man, all this stuff that I'm eating, it's like really catching up physically i've like physically you will feel different but then you notice like i'm really starting to look different yeah i would say the first month of the the difference was pretty noticeable i think the first week i gained like 12 pounds probably mostly water weight right with all that junk food going from being super clean to eating ultra processed food so a lot of water retention that first week but yeah the first month i didn't gain like 24 pounds which was noticeable for me. Every pound was very noticeable for me. Everyone else would tell me, dude, you look fine. You look great still. You look normal. Uh, but for me, I was freaking out because I know how much fat is normal for me. <laughs> but um, uh, I was physical changes. Like I remember the first month uh, or so I started snoring, which I don't normally snore. And I was married at the time. So my wife would tell me that I was snoring, which affected my sleep, uh, which affected my energy levels throughout the day, which affects my cortisol, um, you know, my ability to handle stress. You know, when you're sleep deprived, you're not the same you. Like your hormones shift, um, your <laughs> personality is different. You're constantly in survival mode. You feel like you need more stimulants or caffeine to stay awake because you're constantly groggy, tired. That's what I try to show people on my second journey when I did this in 2020, which I'm sure we'll touch on. Having a, uh, I used a, you know, your, your guys' CGM actually to show the, spikes and crashes from these uh, blood sugar uh, responses to the foods I was eating and how exhausting that is for your body <clears throat> and how every time I would have a huge meal, you know, maybe with like, you know, toast and bagels and cinnamon toast crunch and juice for breakfast, um, you know, get a huge spike maybe to like 180 
and then a huge crash to where I felt like I was going to die. And I, you, it creates this vicious cycle of dependency where you need that spike again. It feels like your body's like, hey, we want that high. That felt good for a minute. But then you feel miserable in between. And that's physically exhausting. So feeling the need to take naps all the time. And that happened around, around I would say, month one. And then I was like, man, I'm already sick of this. And I have five more months of this. <laughs> this is going to be hell. And it really was. It really was. Um, food became my crutch. Food became my stress release, which is not a healthy stress release versus exercise or walking of some type, which normally is my stress release, uh, you know, uh, for my mental health. But not having that, food becomes your stress release. And that's not the healthiest <laughs> stress release as a book. No, if you're, if you're reaching for comfort foods. Um, walking up the stairs, my cardio was, was gone pretty quickly, uh, from what I remember within the first two months, like walking up the stairs, huffing and puffing, having to hold my breath, uh, to bend over and tie my shoes or to pick something up. I've never experienced that before. Um, yeah. And just your belly getting in the way all the time, food, you know, falling off and, and dropping onto your belly. Like I had that happen a lot. I would, uh, at, towards the end when my belly was so big, I would rest my hands on my belly or put like a, <clears throat> a beer or a drink or something, it, uh, you know, using your, your belly to prop stuff up. And that was pretty interesting. So yeah, throughout the, the journey, there was a lot of physical changes that were like new to me that were humbling and uh, definitely very eye-opening. And, you know, all of it led to more and more compassion, more and more empathy for people that struggle with this. And yeah, it was a really eye-opening experience doing that, that experiment. Yeah, once you're past that first month, like especially for you, because you go from certain physical shape, you're in you're in shape, you know physically what you feel like, you look like, but it's easy to understand how once you pass a certain point, the changes are less noticeable, maybe physically, but um, they're less noticeable physically the way you feel, but physically in your body shape it changes so gradually over time it's not like that first week when you picked up 12 and you're like well some of that's water weight some of that's from just retaining um retaining water because you're eating saltier foods highly processed things right once you're past that it's easy to understand how somebody looks and they're like wait I'm I'm 40 pounds heavier than I normally am, but you don't you don't see right you you get to this point where that catches up because of poor lifestyle habits, and it's not just I mean we reinforce this all the time, and it's something that sounds like you saw it too firsthand, where it's like it's everything. It's the having you develop apnea, right? You develop that apnea from snoring. That leads to poor glucose control. That leads to poor biomarkers. That leads to poor sleep quality. That leads to, and it goes on and on and on where it's not just one thing. And that's the really slippery slope of of going down these paths. So why don't we bring it into once you started getting physically healthy again. So you did this, but the first time you did everything, you were doing it we'll call it unguided. You're doing it without having access to like what's actually happening from a biometric standpoint inside my body. We'll get to the 2020 when you did it again with yeah. the CGM. But um, why don't we go through that path? Like what was that like as far as you're doing things, um, you're doing things without data and still learning and going in yeah. that whole journey? Yeah. So the journey back, it was very interesting. Part of me was excited, right? Because I'm like, man, I want to get my body back. I like, I want to get back in shape like as soon as possible, right? 
Um, but another part of me was really scared because I've never been 75 pounds overweight. I've never had to lose that much weight. And I had these doubts or these fears of like, what if I'm stuck like this? Like, what if I can't lose the weight? And I have this national audience watching me because, uh, you know, I went on a bunch of TV shows like Dr. Oz, Good Morning America, Jay Leto. And so everyone was following this journey. And I'm like, man, I hope this works. <laughs> and so I had a lot of pressure, a lot of fear, a lot of doubts about that. Um, but I remember I, I had to go cold turkey from, you know, eating processed junk food about five to 6,000 calories per day to eating, you know, whole foods, you know, around 2,000 calories per day. Um, and I, I had six months to lose the weight. And I remember the first two weeks were the most grueling, hellish experience um, that I've never experienced before because um, I've never had to just go cold turkey eating all this junk food, which felt really good for six months, right? Training my body, my mind to react a certain way. And then now all of a sudden not being able to have that, my body went through withdrawal symptoms as if it was getting out a drug. And I remember my body fought back against me, which was so interesting. It was a very big surprise because I was thinking, oh, day one, you know, I have my green smoothie in the morning, have my salad and my protein and veggies throughout the day. And, you know, before you know, I'll have my six pack back in no time, right? <laughs> and I kind of went into it thinking like, oh yeah, I'm going to feel great. But I felt miserable. I had headaches. I was grumpy. I was moody. Um, the food did not taste nearly as good as I remember it tasting. I felt hungry all the time. And it felt like my body was like, hey, where is this high that we've had for the past six months? We don't like this feeling. And it took a good two weeks of going through that hill um, for it to improve. But what I learned from that, this light bulb went off. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is what my clients have been telling me. When I give them a meal plan, say, okay, here's your meal plan. You follow this and expected them to be perfect at it. I couldn't understand before why they can just willpower their way through it and just do it. And for me, finally experiencing that of just how hard it is, not just physically, but mentally to stay consistent when for so long you've trained your brain to react to stress or stimulus in a certain way by, by you know, having a little dopamine hit every time you have a bowl of cinnamon toast crunch or a bowl of ice cream or, or whatever, you know, delicious junk food that it is that does that to you. Um, not having that all of a sudden, and your body kind of freaks out and kind of fights back against you. Like, hey, where's our drug? Where, where's this thing we've had? And so it was very eye-opening for me. But it, once again, empathy uh, came into play where I'm like, oh my gosh, I realized how wrong I was. This is why it's so difficult because the emotional connection to food, I totally underestimated that. I didn't realize that it was something to even you know talk about. I was like, no, you just look part your way through it and you just do it until I had that experience myself where I'm like, oh, I see now. I understand why it's so hard. It's, just, it's not just a matter of willpower. It's the emotional connection to food that we've built up where over time, we've trained our brain and we've programmed our brain to respond to stress by getting a little bit of a escape, if you will, or a numbing mechanism by having this little dopamine release in every time we have delicious food. And then over the years, we train our brain. Anytime we have an emotional emotional pain or emotional challenge in life, we don't like to stay in that pain. As humans, we look for releases. We want to run away from the pain. And so what? guess what the most accessible drug is to feel better instantly? It's not cocaine or heroin. It's it's the ultra-processed junk food that we have available 24-7 here in the United States, for example, where any time of the day, we can go get a dopamine release just like cocaine or heroin would do. Um, but instead, you can do it multiple times per day, and it's legal. <laughs> and 
you know, it tastes really good and it's affordable, right? And everyone, you know, for the most part eats this type of food. And so we train our brain for years and decades. And then all of a sudden we're like, okay, I'm going to diet. I'm going to lose weight. I'm not going to touch sugar. It's like, well, good luck. Like, it's like telling the drug addict, like, all right, no more drugs. You just got to like, we'll power your way through this. And this is why it's so difficult for people to get off of these addictive substances. Same thing for food. And this is where my eyes were opened and I was awakened to, oh, this is why people struggle with transformation. It's because, you know, we expect them to follow this diet as if it's no problem. Like you just will power your way through it and it should be easy for you. Um, but for me, it really opened my eyes to the power of emotional eating and why I would say a majority of people struggle. It's not, it's not, you know, that they don't care about themselves or they don't want to lose the weight. It's just like any other drug addict trying to get off drug. We have to have compassion and understanding empathy and help them on the mental emotional side, rather than just saying, what's wrong with you? Don't be stupid. Just do this, which is kind of the mentality of like, you know, the, the tough mentality of like, just do it, which works for a small percentage of the population. But I've seen the majority of people, they, they struggle with the emotional eating because it's years and decades of programming that we're just trying to instantly say, hey, don't think that way. Just think this way. And uh, for me, that was that that first experience of losing the weight. <laughs> but I will say after about two or three weeks, your body does adjust. It's not always that the cravings aren't always that intense. They do become more manageable. And so for me, I realized, okay, if I just stick with it and can make it through that first like two to four weeks, then it becomes easier, right? And this is why it's so important to maybe have a coach or accountability partner or a group of people doing this with you. Because if you're doing it alone, it's so easy. Just to, like, no one's watching. Like, oh, you know, my kids have sugary cereal in the, in the cupboard or Maybe there's some ice cream in the freezer. And anytime I get too stressed or too overwhelmed or too uncomfortable, I can always just go and reach for that any time of the day. And it's always there. Um, and so that's what I've, I've realized uh, from that experience of, of trying to lose the weight was just how powerful the emotional connection of food really is. Yeah. And you, you become so physically dependent on those carbs or the sugar because it's become a part of your diet. And so it's like naturally you're going through this withdrawal. And if you use the, if you use a strategy of just power through it, like you said, people aren't going to, on average, people might not respond to that. And the challenge is it makes them regress back to this old behavior of feeling stressed. Like, oh, Billy's, Billy like frustrated me at work. And so you reach for the bag of Twizzlers because it feels kind of good. Even though you're trying to be disciplined, I'm just going to have one. Assume somebody gets off of it, right? So they're, they have, um, the best intent to make significant lifestyle changes. The next layer of the challenge becomes understanding how many things sugar gets hidden in. So you go, you say, now I've stopped doing the venti frappuccino every day or (laughs) once a week, whatever it was for your treat. I'm only going to order the iced coffee at Starbucks. You got to know, like, the standard iced coffee at Starbucks comes with the sweetener in it. You have to order it without the sweetener. So it's like, you still are from a, a cellular level, from a physical standpoint, you're still getting that sugar that you're trying to avoid. And that's where it gets so much harder to make these changes unless you really start to strip things down to a foundation and say, I understand that having, assume somebody is, assume somebody eats meat and cruciferous vegetables. I'm only having the chicken and the Brussels sprouts and I make it at home. That like at, throwing olive oil on it. That is how you start to make these changes, but it takes a really long time and a lot of mental effort to 
stick with these habits. They don't, they don't happen overnight. It's so true. And it's, it's unfortunate that we live in a society where to be healthy is, is the hard route. That's the uphill battle. Like to get organic grass fed food and to, you kind of have to go out of your way. You have to spend more money. You have to spend more mental energy putting the effort to researching, studying, okay, what has sugar, what doesn't have sugar, um, meal prepping all this food, spending the money on all that and like knowing how to do that. That And that's why people are turned off by trying to live a healthy lifestyle because they're like, man, this is so much effort day in and day out. And I have to worry about kids and finances and spouse and other relationships and, and other adult things that you're like, you're putting mental energy into all these other things. And now all of a sudden to be healthy, like, which you don't have a lot of time for at the end of the day, especially if you have like little kids and you're just in survival mode all day long. It's like, I got to go to the gym for an hour and I got to meal prep for an hour. <clears throat> On top of all these other adult things you have to do, you only have so much mental energy you can put out every single day and then to add in diet and exercise and staying consistent and disciplined. This is why so many people struggle because we've made it such an uphill battle. It's so much easier just to push a button on your phone, door dash some food, have it arrive fresh, it smells good, it tastes good, it fills you up. It's probably cheaper than than real food, you know, a whole food. Um, <laughs> and, and it tastes good and it feeds your family. And you're like, well, that's calories. So we're surviving. And, and so that's the hard part that we live in a society where we've made it so hard for people to want to live a healthy lifestyle. You got to pay extra. And like I said, you have to really put in even more mental energy to make, make uh, yourself healthy. And so that's why so many people gravitate towards the path of least resistance. And then we like judge them for just not having more willpower. This is what my whole mission is with Fit to Fit to Fit doing this twice now is empathy first. If, if there's a good quote, and I think it's um, Teddy Roosevelt said this, uh, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's kind of what Fit to Fit to Fit my whole movement is about is you could have all the knowledge in the world about how to change someone's body composition and how to tweak things so that you know, it, it all works and they lose weight and they lose fat and all that stuff. That's great. That's awesome. That's, that's super important. But if that person doesn't feel listened to or heard or safe or cared about, most likely that person is going to listen to the traders, the fitness influencers out there, the Instagram model that are saying, hey, just follow this diet. There's this disconnect that exists between those ultra fit people and your average mom or dad that doesn't have, or their priority isn't to have a six pack ripped or shredded. Sure, if there's an easy button to do that, awesome. But they're like, you know, how are they going to fit in, you know, uh, two hour long workouts and meal prepping and all these things that they think they have to do. Um, it's, it's really difficult. But what I've learned is that if someone feels understood, they feel cared about, they feel safe, then they're more willing to listen to the knowledge that you have but we don't know how to connect with people. And this is where empathy can be such a driving force, not just in the fitness industry, but the world in general. And so that's what led me into doing this journey a second time, not to lead you on uh, where we're going with this interview, but that's kind of what led me to do this journey a second time in 2020 was because I felt like the first time around, it was a lesson for me to learn. Okay, I need to learn more empathy. Now doing it a second time, it's like, hey, especially in 2020 when the world was so divided with everything going on in the world with the riots and the pandemic and the division on social media. And just, man, I felt like we lost this ability to empathize with people and listen to understand instead of listen to respond or listen to judge or critique or criticize. We're so quick to do those things. 
Uh, we don't really truly sit down to listen to understand someone. And that's why there's a good book that I read uh, by Oprah called What Happened to You. And instead of asking what's wrong with you, like why are you the way you are and what's wrong with you that for, for thinking that way, it's more about getting curious and asking what happened to you that led you down this path of where you are today? I want to understand you. And once I understand you and you feel understood, then maybe you're more willing to listen and become more aware of why you are the way you are and why you do to do to be able to <clears throat> then um, thoughtfully respond to those situations that you've just been reacting to on the subconscious level um, and just kind of going about on almost on autopilot for the past decade or two. Now that you're more aware, you can become more responsible and become more in control of your actions. And then from there, that's how you fix this emotional eating addiction or food addiction or any addiction really is self-awareness. As you become more aware, you become more in control. And then one more good quote from Anthony DeMello, he says, what you are aware of, you are in control of, but what you're not aware of controls you. And that's so powerful for learning how to become more self-aware. And so this is where my brand has taken, um, you know, um, uh, uh, has taken a turn for focusing more on the mental and emotional side of fitness instead of the, the physical side. Like what's the science and the, the best diet, the best workout and the best supplement to optimize our bodies. For me, it's about doing the inner work first, right? And then the working it out later on. Because if you can't figure out the inner work first and figure out why you do what you do and what your triggers are, then um, you're just going to struggle from diet to diet to diet, you know, just kind of um, uh, burning your wheels, if you will, um, uh, spinning your wheels, just kind of like, trying to figure out like, well, what's wrong with me? Why can't I just stick to a diet? But once you do the inner work first, then the, all the physical stuff, diet, exercise, all that stuff becomes so much easier because now you know what your triggers are. You're more self-aware. And you're coming from a place of self-love and self-compassion instead of a place of self-hate. And this is kind of the, my new approach to the health and fitness industry is, hey, let's, let's, for most people, they're, they're, you know, they're not your, the Dave Goggins of the world. You know, they're not going to have the discipline just to beat themselves up and push themselves to run 100 miles and like, discipline themselves all overnight. For most of the population, it's going to take doing the inner work first and figuring out um, why they do what they do and what their triggers are. And, and maybe it's holding on to trauma or years of programming and learning how to release that. And then the diet and exercise becomes so much easier at that point. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's creating the conditions for people to put their hands <laughs> on the wheel. As soon as you've got the hand on the wheel, then you're in control of the car. But without it, it's it's exactly what you said. It's, it's yeah. a much different process to go through this I'm going to do this thing to reach this result, but you're not creating the habit formation and saying, hey, this is the identity. This is who I am because it's okay. Like if there is a detour, when you've got your hand on the wheel, you know how to get back around the detour. It's when you don't have your hand on the wheel that the car is just sort of like squirreling down the road. Like that's a, that's a really dangerous path to be on. In, in 2020, it was, that was such a, a wild time, I think around the world where you saw almost these two camps. You saw people who said, wow, I was drastically impacted from a health and wellness perspective. Um, I wasn't as physically active as I normal, normally am. And, and that might've led people down a different path than they were used to. And then there was the other side where people said, this is my time, right? Yeah. And you see people who 
typically didn't focus as much on physical fitness or uh, nutrition took this turn. It was like this catalyst. It put them. It was the tipping point that put them into jumpstart mode, and th- that was an interesting thing. But in 2020, you decided to to do the journey again. Yeah. But you had a CGM this time, which was a uh, a lot different because you could start to see what was actually happening. So. Why don't you walk through that and what some of the learnings were as far as like the differences that you saw by seeing how food affected your health when you, especially when you're going through and you're going like, holy smokes, I didn't know it was that, right? Like you don't understand until you see that feedback loop of how detrimental, and I don't want to oversell and be hyperbolic, but how detrimental over time, processed food, sugar, things that are objectively not good for you, the air quotes Twinkies of the world, like these are things that make a, a, a very significant impact on people's health and wellness over a long period of time. Yeah. So doing it a second time, I learned so much from that first experiment where the first experiment, to be totally honest with you, like I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just kind of documenting as best I could. It was me and my uh, wife at the time, uh, just kind of doing our best to document as much as we could. But we'd have access to the technology that we have now. Social media wasn't what it is today. And so this time around, I really had time to plan it out, prepare it, and make it more entertaining, but also more educational. So this is why I brought on a doctor to do blood work uh, at least once a month and sometimes even more. Uh, I used a CGM device. I used my Whoop to track my sleep, my recovery. Um, uh, yeah, all that stuff just to kind of show people more data of what was happening uh, to the my physical body on the outside, but also on the inside. And then also I would document and video a bunch of it uh, to show people the mental and emotional challenge changes that I was, <laughs> that I was noticing. And um, so the CGM was a big um, component of this, especially as, as I was gaining weight, because I thought this is a really cool opportunity to show people what happens when you eat a standard American breakfast. And, <clears throat> you know, I don't know how old you are, Ben, but, you know, me growing up in the 80s, I remember seeing commercials of a, a complete American breakfast. And it was usually a bowl of cereal, uh, a piece of toast and a glass of orange juice or something along those lines. And that was kind of like, hey, this is part of a complete American breakfast. <laughs> and so we've been programmed and marketed to like, hey, this is what we're supposed to eat. Lots of carbs, right? The food pyramid, lots of carbs for every single meal. And um, so I want to show people just exactly what this does to your body in your mind uh, as you eat this food. And uh, so, yeah, I, I embarked on that and I would show people my my CGM data, my, my blood spikes and my crashes, blood sugar spikes and crashes throughout the day multiple times with, hey, let's try this juice. Let's try, um, you know, uh, this this bowl of spaghetti or whatever it is. But I also, what's interesting is I threw in these little mini experiments with the most popular diets out there, keto, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian, in my opinion, and kind of put those four diets to the test of, it, it, as I gained the weight to show people like, hey, just because you're keto, just because you're vegan, there is an unhealthy way to do it, which is a, what a lot of people gravitate towards. So I did a little mini experiment with these diets where I show my blood sugar levels eating the dirty version, if you will, of keto or paleo or vegan. Because as you know, once a diet becomes popular, becomes mainstream, marketing companies jump all over that. <laughs> and so now you have keto cookies and keto ice cream and keto breads and you have vegan cookies and vegan, vegan junk food and, you know, paleo pancakes and paleo treats and all the stuff, right? We have all the comfort foods that fit into those categories. So people do these diets and they're like, oh man, I really miss pizza. 
I'm going to get this keto pizza or really miss, you know, something, cookies or bread. I'm going to get this vegan version of it. And before you know it, they're eating most of their calories from these processed foods that fit into these categories thinking, hey, well, I'm healthier because I, I'm doing this diet or that diet. And so I show my blood sugar responses for those, <laughs> for those um, dirty versions of those diets. And that was very interesting to show what was happening, not just to my blood sugar levels, but also my sleep, um, my blood glucose levels, um, my lipids as well, my triglycerides. That was what was really surprising. My triglycerides skyrocketed during vegan, dirty vegan, dirty vegetarian week. Uh, it got into the 500s, I believe, on the vegetarian week. Uh, 400s on the dirty vegan week, um, you know, and, you know, keto and paleo obviously weren't healthy either, but, uh, you know, I wanted to show people like, Hey, if you're going to do these diets, here's what not to do. But yeah, I had a ton of data. I've had my doctor doing blood work and doing all kinds of testing just to make it as educational as possible to really open up people's eyes to here's what happens to your body when you eat these types of foods day in and day out. But then also here's what happens to your mind, your relationships. Because, you know, at the time I, I was in a relationship, had a girlfriend and, you know, my daughters were older now. So, you know, different phase of life, you know, it affected my relationships doing this journey. You know, a lot of people don't think food affects who you are or affects your personality, but it, it really does. And I'll, I'll show you why, because like I mentioned, my sleep uh, was disrupted, you know, eating this food, drinking alcohol. Um, your sleep, you don't sleep as efficiently. And I track that through my my sleep data using my whoop. And so I'm waking up every morning, groggy, sleep deprived, you know, in survival mode, you know, constantly in the red with each um, with each night of sleep that I was trying to get as much sleep as I could. But when you wake up and feel exhausted, so what do you do? You take in some type of caffeine or stimulants, coffee with a bunch of sugar, like you mentioned. <laughs> and, you know, you feel awake, you feel alert for a minute, right? You get a blood sugar spike, you feel good for a second, right? And then, you know, a few, you know, maybe an hour or two later, you have a huge crash and you're like, I need some more food. So you get some muffins, you get some bagels, uh, banana, um, you know, some juice, whatever it is. You get another spike. Okay, I'm good for a little bit. And then boom, another crash. And you're like, man, I'm exhausted. It's 12 o'clock. I got to take a nap. Let me do some more coffee with some more sugar to get myself up for another few hours. And then, you know, it's a crash. And then having to to feel like you need to take a nap again. And then you repeat that all the way. And then at nighttime, you drink a few drinks to relax. And then your sleep is affected by drinking alcohol late at night. And then you repeat that cycle. So you're constantly in survival mode and your ability to handle stress is diminished. So you have so much patience with your kids or with your spouse or your significant other dealing with stress, right? <clears throat> and now that you're super physically unhealthy, your ability to handle that stress is severely diminished. So then you're just reactive. You're not the nicest version of you. You're not the most thoughtful version of you uh, that you would want to be. And this is how living a, an unhealthy fiscal lifestyle day in and day out, year after year, decade after decade, affects who you are at the core of who you are. It affects your personality. This is why your physical health is tied to your mental, emotional, and spiritual health. A lot of people don't think that's true, but the way you eat, the way you sleep, the lack of exercise that you get, affects your ability to show up in these other relationships that are super important to you. You love your kids, you love your spouse, you love your significant other, but you're not the best version of yourself for them by abusing your body this way day in and day out, year after year, decade after decade. Yeah, that gets, it gets so challenging because it just compounds over time and it gets worse and worse. One of the things that you saw was all this data through the CGM 
related to glucose. And it's something that we talk about often as CGMs are something that we're very focused on from the software side of things right now. But when it comes to weight loss, it's inevitable that insulin plays such a huge, huge part of it. And over time, as people start to consume more sugar, more carbohydrates, things that cause significant spikes in glucose and um, drops where people go hypoglycemic, you become insulin resistant. So what did you start to think when you're doing all the, um, if you're doing blood uh, blood work every month and you're starting to see some of these markers change, what was it that you saw change with your insulin over time um, that made a big difference in the way that you were actually starting to metabolize some of these foods? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm trying to go off of memory here, so I don't really recall everything. This is a couple of years now. Um, but here's the, here's the thing. I will say genetics does play a factor because even though I was unhealthy, um, my levels, my, all my lipids did get to unhealthy levels. My, I remember my doctor telling me, like, look, your body can handle X amount of stress. Like each person's genetics are different. Very fortunately, I come from a family of good genetics. So even though I was getting these huge spikes and crashes throughout the day, which did not feel good to my body, he did say, you know, this is different than someone that I've seen do this for decades, right? Some people have been doing this for decades. At that point, their level of insulin resistance is different than my level of insulin resistance doing it for uh, four months, right? I did it for four months the second time. So I do want to make that comparison. Like, in no way was my experiment similar to someone who's 50 years old, you know, 60 pounds overweight. They've been that way for, you know, 20 years now. And they just have never really tried to improve their situation. Maybe they're on some type of medication to help control insulin. Um, And maybe they're even pre-diabetic, but they haven't changed their habits at all. That kind of abuse year after year, that's the kind of stuff that you need to be worried about versus someone like me. This was a mini experiment, if you will. And so even though my, my, my numbers were in the red short term, they bounced back pretty quickly. Um, going back to fit, when I started eating healthy and exercising, my doctor was like, man, you're, I wish everyone had your genetics because my ability to bounce back into the healthy levels with my insulin, with my lipids um, was pretty remarkable. Um, and you know, I am still quite young, 40, 41 now. So, um, and I don't have the numbers in front of me. I wish I had the numbers in front of me to show you exactly what happened. Um, but from what I remember, that was the trend of like bad, 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 bad for four months, you know, pretty bad <laughs> towards the end. Oh, we're looking at some, some numbers and, uh, I can't remember which ones were the worst, but, um, they, it got pretty bad, but then very quickly <clears throat> after like about a month of eating healthy food exercising, meditating, going for a walk every day, out in nature. Those kinds of numbers came back pretty quickly um, as I stayed consistent with my healthy lifestyle. So I just want to put that out there to make people aware. Like my journey was is totally different than someone who's been overweight for years or decades. I don't want to make that comparison, but that was the trend. So hopefully that answers your question a little bit. Yeah, when you were doing it the second time, did you have a a different level of confidence in yourself because the first time you're doing it, it sounds like it was one of those things where you maybe doubted at first. You're like, can, like, is this going to come off? Is, am I, is this my new state of being? But was it like the second time around, did you have a little more confidence of I can do this? I just need to create the right conditions and start to adapt. 
Were there different things that you learned or oh, what what did it feel like? I mean, you've got, it, it's very much in this decade of tech where you've got different tools in front of you that help you through this journey. But mentally, that that doesn't change. Physically, like you see different data, you have different tools, different mechanisms, but the mental component is something that strip away the tools. It's still, you have to find it, create that that foundation within yourself to to be able to get fit again. Yeah, that's, it's going into the second time. You know, I was a little bit more confident uh, uh, with, I was a little more confident with my ability to lose the weight and get it off and, and be be back to fit. Um, I, I wasn't too worried about getting stuck there just because I've been through it. And then also at the same time, I enjoyed myself a lot more this, this time around. I was not as attached to my body image as self-image. And so that wasn't really a factor for me this time around. Uh, I, I was totally confident taking my shirt off. I knew that, that this was temporary. I knew my body would bounce back. And plus, you know, over 10 years later, my knowledge and my understanding of my body and nutrition and exercise had, I would say, was had been upgraded. So I knew my, I was confident in my approach this time around, having done it once already, knowing that I was going to get back to fit. This time around, I used more of a ketogenic intermittent fasting approach with my with my diet. And then my exercise was very similar. Um, you know, five days a week, um, you know, 45 minutes a day of exercise, lots of weightlifting in there. Um, you know, some high intensity interval training cardio. Um, yeah, I wasn't in the same mindset of like, oh, am I going to get stuck? I definitely had some fears. There definitely were some plateaus, <laughs> which happened, but I knew that, you know, in the long run, this, I had to trust the process and I've been through it before. So I wasn't too worried about it the second time. So, not everyone has access to whoop and things like levels or a CGM um, using different blood tracking, taking blood tests through whether it's Scarlet or Inside Tracker. Not everyone has access to this, but what are some of the, if, if you were to give some takeaways or some recommendations as far as like, what can people do if they don't have these tools in front of them? How can they start? Like somebody is sitting there right now and saying, I just yeah. want to start and I've tried and I've tried and they're on this Sisyphean endeavor of pushing the rock up the hill, but not quite getting there. What What's something like if you've got some takeaways that people can do to take this journey if you're breaking it up into micro steps? I know we talked about the mindset part of it and the foundation. What are some tactical things that you think about? Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's a few things that I do that uh, help my clients. And the, the ultimate thing is training your brain to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations. And by training your brain to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations, that tends to carry over into the whole diet and exercise and consistency and discipline part. Um, because let's be honest, transformation is uncomfortable. And we are a society of comfort now. And we have all the comforts at our fingertips. So anytime today, it's, 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 it's hard. You kind of have to go out of your way to be uncomfortable nowadays. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a pill or a potion for a headache or a stomach ache, or you're too hot or you're too cold or you know, whatever. We have all the comforts we could possibly have. So the list that I have for people to get started, it has nothing to do with exercise at all. So what I have them do is things that, uh, it's not going to get them a six pack, but this helps to train the brain to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations. So the first thing I have them do is make their bed every single morning. What does that have to do with weight loss? Nothing, but it's a discipline thing. It's something you can be perfect in every single day. First thing in the morning, you get up, you make your bed before you're thinking about it. And that's one thing you can be perfect in. Uh, the next thing uh, I have people do is, is some form of meditation. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, however long you want to do it for. Being still, sitting with your thoughts is very uncomfortable for a large percentage of the population, especially here 
in the Western hemisphere. And that's training your brain to become comfortable in an uncomfortable situation. So meditation it also helps build self-awareness. It helps you to be more present and it helps you to observe your thoughts rather than attaching yourself to your thoughts. So meditation is a huge part of that. Uh, the next thing I'll have them do is take a cold shower um, or at least 60 seconds in cold water of some type. And what that does, once again, is a, an opportunity to train the brain to become comfortable in a very uncomfortable situation, cold water. What happens? We are, you know, we usually, you know, tense up and we, our fight or flight is activated in that moment. And we, we want to run it. We want to get out of there. We don't like that feeling. But what I tell people to do is learn how to control your breathing, slow your breathing down. It sucks. It's going to suck. It might suck for just 60 seconds. Start, start out your shower with warm water so you're not like freaking out right away. At the very end, turn the water on a freezing cold, count to 60, right? And try and slow your breathing down. And it gets easier over time. But what you're doing is you're telling your brain and your body like, hey, yes, this sucks. This is very uncomfortable, but we're not going to die. We're safe. We can do this hard thing. And then that tends to carry over when they have to eat broccoli versus pizza or when they have to push themselves during a workout where their muscles are burning, they're puffing and puffing and they're sweating. It's very uncomfortable to say, hey, I know this is hard, but uh, we can do hard things. We're safe. We're going to be okay. We're not going to die. And that their ability to do hard things throughout the day it increases by doing this, these, this stuff consistently. Uh, the next thing I have to do is a gratitude journal. Find three to five things you're grateful for every single day. And what that does is it helps to rewire the brain to be more grateful or fulfilled with where they're at now in their life. Because when people go into physical transformation, they seem unhappy. They're like, well, one day when I lose the weight, one day when I get this body, then I'll be happy with myself. Then I'll love myself. And it's it's always about one day, you know, uh, which never seems to come for people. So learning how to be grateful and fulfilled now, even as imperfect as your life is, you'll still be able to find things you're grateful for. And so that helps to rewire the brain as well. Um, and then positive affirmations would be another thing. Um, saying three to five things positive about yourself out loud to yourself, whether looking into a mirror or out loud for yourself to hear. And that is really powerful. It affects you at the cellular level um, because a lot of people are really hard on themselves. There's a lot of people come from a place of self-hate. If you can learn to love yourself, and operate out of a place of self-love, then you don't have to see this diet and exercise thing as a chore or something that you have to do in order to get this body, in order to be accepted by society, in order to be loved by everyone. You are choosing to do this for you because you realize that you're worth it to feel good physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and diet and exercise, even though they might suck in the moment or be harder in the moment. In the long run, we all can admit that those things make us feel better in the long run. Like in the short term, you're sore, you're tired, you're hungry, you want pizza, you want the junk food, sure. But in the long run, you're sleeping better, you have more energy throughout the day, you're more positive, you're, you have better digestion, you have better sex, you have better relationships because you're feeling better, you're sleeping better, and you feel strong, you feel healthy, right? You're not, you're not puffing and puffing, uh, walking up the stairs. So we all can admit that living a healthy lifestyle makes us feel better in the long run. And so these types of things are some are something are some things that everyone can do to get started. And I promise you, if you do these things first, try it out for 30 days doing a list of those things and then see how much easier the diet, the exercise component is once you've trained your brain to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations. 
And so it's not a magic pill. It's not going to fix everything, but it is a unique approach, a different approach that I found works really well for people, especially those who have struggled with emotional eating or, or self-acceptance or self-love. Um, start there and then we'll worry about the diet and exercise stuff later. Yeah, it's such a good thing to touch on the the idea of creating healthy foundation. Like health and wellness, there's almost this inaccurate mental model we have that health equals good nutrition plus physical activity. And that is like somewhat true. It absolutely is somewhat true. That's a very significant component. But the sleep, the gratitude, the mindfulness, the, all the other things that come with having that foundation you have to have all these pieces there and that like those other pieces don't have to do with the food they don't have to do with the physical activity those are the byproduct of having a good foundation where it's like yeah you can go do those other things a lot easier and everything feels better when you get the cohesion and the interconnectedness but without the foundation it's kind of like you're missing you got to crawl before you walk before you run and that's like really what you're saying which is such a good way of, of framing it yeah. So what's what's a good place if we're going to throw some plugs out? Where can people find you? What's a good place for people to connect with you and uh, learn more about everything that you Yeah. Can? So it's super simple. All my social media handles and website and podcast and book is just fit to fat to fit. So fit number two, fat number two, fit. And uh, you'll be able to follow, find me on all the social media channels with that handle. And the website, podcast and book are all there too.